John, how are you, sir? I'm doing great. I've been incredibly busy uh, the last couple of months. It seems as though the WNA was really lift off to, you know, get back to work, and and it's been all things uranium uh, since that. For sure, for sure. I think we spoke just before uh, WNA kicked off back at, at end end of August. Um, you you were there. Were you there in country? We. I mean, yes, I was. It was uh, it was actually my first WNA. Um, oddly, though, I didn't actually step into the conference because uh, I was busy meeting with about forty different institutions over that that week in London. So I was running around the city, meeting with a lot of um, existing shareholders in the Uranium Trust, as well as uh, a number of uh, prospective ones. So uh, I was very busy. So unfortunately, we didn't cross paths and. Uh, it didn't slow down from there. We we then carried on and, and uh, continued marketing in Italy and Switzerland. Our team went to Brazil, uh, just came back from New York. Uh, so we've been really busy since then. Everybody is interested in what is going on in uranium. I think it's it really comes down to um, uh, one big thing, which is why is this commodity up 50% in a year where everything is essentially down? It's getting a lot of interest. And what we've noticed in the last two months is that the breadth of interest that we're getting has uh, clearly widened. Uh, the number of inbounds we're getting from institutional investors has clearly accelerated. I think the last two months, uh, our last count, uh, we've had something like 250 uh, institutional engagements, either through one-on-ones or different webcasts or group calls that we've done uh, right around the globe. So we've been, uh, myself and, and our team here at Sprout have been incredibly busy. Okay, but so there, but there are institutions and there are institutions, right? So um, it's still a small, relatively small space and uh, and the ability to deploy capital is difficult. Um, mm-hmm. It's good that people are leaning in and trying to understand that, but give, give me a sense of what type of investors and what, what are the questions? Are they looking for a quick quick buck or are they looking for long-term uh, sustainable investment? Yeah, well, I think um, what we've noticed in the last couple of months is that we've moved from kind of specialist funds uh, that are either focused on energy transition or commodities or macro or hedge funds or whatever. Um, and of late, we've, we've seen a broadening uh, into more generalist uh, categories of investment. And as you would expect, as a generalist, this is not uh, the easiest, quickest uh, sector to get up to speed with. So most of our calls are, are on education, helping people understand the, the fundamentals of the market, um, how it works, why it's different than other commodity prices, helping them understand, okay, why is it up 50% year to day when most other commodities are down? So I would say that there is a learning um, process that they're going through, but I think it's really healthy that uh, interest is starting to widen. That doesn't mean they're all going to invest in the sector, but they're clearly doing their homework and they're intrigued. And um, I think they see how this fits into a broader decarbonization, energy security thematic. And I think they're 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 clearly interested in you know what are the longer term fundamentals going on here. I don't think people are looking for a short term trade here. They're looking for new ideas. A lot of things in the market have clearly not worked. Uh, things that have worked really well in the past have kind of stalled out. I think people are open to new investment ideas, and this is a really unique one. Well, yeah, I, so I get the kind of professorial type educational process. You're, you're going through at the moment. I'm, I'm sort of intrigued about, obviously, clearly, gold market, precious metal market stalled. In fact, most 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 commodities have stalled. This is this is the darling of of the moment. Is there a little bit of use it or you'll lose it with some of these guys. You know how much money they're talking about deploying, and you know what could that quantum, that total sum, 
uh, do for the market if if you did get a decent uh, percentage of them investing? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, as you as you correctly pointed out, it's not a big sector to begin with, and I think uh, you know we've been very consistent in our messaging for two plus years is that the, one of the biggest challenges with the sector uh, is not related to the fundamentals. The fundamentals look great. The issue is it's just very hard to invest in the sector. It's just not very liquid um, for a lot of these big guys. So what you know what we focus on is mostly smaller and mid-sized institutions. Now I'll say mid-sized, but it's still an enormous amount of money. But it's all about you know relative uh, ability to get involved in some of the the, the companies themselves. But you know I would say uh, let's just make up a number and say the whole market cap of the sector is somewhere in the forty billion odd uh, range. I mean it's it's a drop in the bucket, right, in terms of uh, the market capitalization of other sectors. And if you think about how much capital has come into the sector, uh, and we measure that by looking at our own vehicles, um, the, the, the physical uranium trust, the uranium mining, uh, equity ETFs uh, globally, including our own. And we, if you calculate um, you know, the, the sum total of all of those different investment vehicles, we get about a billion dollars of net inflows this year. Now, when I think about a sector that's up 40 to 50% for the year in a market environment where everything else has been pretty challenging, a billion dollars is really not that much. When you look at the billions of dollars going into like 20-year treasury funds and, and things like that. So yes, money is finally coming back in the sector. Most of that's come in the last three months. So it is kind of front loaded, but money is coming back in. Uh, the, and I think more importantly, the equities are finally doing what they're supposed to be doing which is outperforming the commodity price. So we had the commodity price kind of race ahead this year. The equities kind of you know, caught a bid in the summer and they've been they've been quite resilient other than a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a correction in profit taking we've seen in October, but the equities are finally, you know, demonstrating that operating leverage that everybody's looking for. Right, but do you, do you see that moving anymore this side, this side of Christmas because obviously Charlotte's is all at the moment and you know I think the expectation is that We'll start to see term contracts being talked about. I mean, you yourself must be looking to try and understand what the top and bottom end of, of those contracts um, c- could look like. I mean, what are, you, what are you hearing on that front? Yeah, well, when we were at WNA in London, we we heard at the conference that there were uh, going to be five European utilities coming out with RFPs shortly after the conference uh, of at least five million pounds apiece. It has only accelerated from 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 that point. We've heard of multiple more utilities coming to market. It is a seasonally more busy time uh, in the contracting cycle. Uh, and I think it's going to be very robust. Last year, obviously, we had a really good year, um, but we still did not achieve replacement rate contracting levels. This year, I think we're going to achieve it for the first time since 2011. And I think that is what is ultimately driving the price higher in both the spot price uh, with the spot price as well as the term price. Now, term price is obviously there's a lot of fuzziness around it because it isn't as well published, um, or not as frequently published. I don't think it's as accurate. And obviously, a lot of those contracts have caps and floors related to it. What we're watching for in the coming weeks is going to be disclosure from some of the major producers that the caps and floors continue to ratchet up. I think it's fair to say that last quarter we were getting strong disclosure around $50 at the low end, $80 on the caps per pound. Uh, we'd like to see those, those, 
those caps and floors move to 60 to 90 uh, in the in this quarter. So that's what we're going to be looking for. Uh, spot price uh, is around $73 right now. That's obviously the highest highest level since 2011. That's obviously, I think, a psychological milestone. But we know we often tell our investors, you know, just because it hit the level in 2011, it uh, doesn't really mean a whole lot to us because if you inflation adjust the uranium price by even the simplest measure, let's just call it US CPI, from 2011 to today, you get closer to $100. And we all know that the inflation in the mining sector has not been US CPI. So we still think that there's there's more room to go. One of the prominent analysts that we work closely with, he put out a, a uranium research note today. He increased his price target from previously $75 to 90, and I believe his longer term price is 110. So everyone is starting to move their price uh, their price forecasts up, which I think is um, which is very positive. And now we just need to see validation that the utilities are actually you know paying up for this very valuable material. And but do you think that obviously we've moved from a a, a buyer's market into more not, not entirely but more of a of a, of a seller's market? All the equities. I'm, I'm, I'm interested from the equities perspective, and I'm, I'm sure we could have a, 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 little, a little run around, um, um, you know, inventories which you're, you're involved with, and, and you know, even infrastructure as well. I'm sure a lot of the conversations that you had with these institutions were around that. Trying to understand that anyway. But on the on the on the sellers' side, two years ago, pre-COVID, pre-inflationary pressures, give me fifty-five bucks, and we're off and running at the races. Clearly. That dynamic has changed due to the inflation and um, and all this kind of supply chain type issues. Where do you think that number is now meaningfully? The the chemicals obviously they've 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 got a, a call and I think next week or the next couple of weeks anyway um, where they'll let us know where they're at. But for the rest of the guys who need to fund capex projects, what's the number that they're going to need to hit on average? Yeah, I think. Um... I think uh, the good news about about the next tier of producers, and I, I did speak to one in New York last week, is that they're actually getting calls from utilities, uh, openly asking them to participate in the RFPs. That's really healthy because these companies need to, you know, join the party as they get their minds turned back on, um, you know, in terms of the previous existing uh, producers. Uh, they're gonna they're gonna benefit, and I don't see any reason why they should be deeply discounted from where some of the majors are, particularly if they're coming from safe jurisdictions. So um, I expect those you know the benefits to trickle down. If you're building a new mine, obviously uh, part of that financing package is is will likely be supported by signing uh, contracts to 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 you know sell forward some of your future production. You know, that's, you know, sometimes companies want to do that and some, sometimes they, they have to in terms of, you know, to support debt and equity financings. But again, I think, you know, they're not doing, they're not going to be doing these deals at 30s and 40s anymore. They're going to be doing these deals at probably 60s and 70s. And I think that's, that's really healthy for the whole sector. People can get paid uh, sufficient prices to turn on production. That's the ultimate goal here, because if you look at the WNA uh, demand forecast that they put out uh, in London uh, in September. It's it's still showing, you know, a billion and a half pounds of uncovered requirements going out to 2040. It's meaningful. You know, if you think about next year with all the brownfields re restarting, we might get to 150 or 150, 
55 million odd pounds of production. Uh, that's still, you know, we still got a lot of runway to go in terms of, of filling that supply gap. That's going to have to come from new greenfield. It's going to have to come from uh, more brownfield restarts and whatnot. But um, at the end of the day, um, pricing is has improved drastically uh, for the whole sector. And I think the smaller producers and the restarting producers are going to equally benefit in this uh, revival. Well, let's, let's talk about that report that you're you're referencing here which you know is taking as read verbatim what the companies the 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 developers say they're going to be able to produce now the what if scenario is there uh, and is what if some of them aren't what if a lot of them can't what does that do again in terms of you know price pressure well supply pressure we'll understand for sure but what do you think that could do uh, in in a in a very quick time frame once it's understood that perhaps some of these companies can only hold out for so long for incentive prices to reach ever-changing numbers that they they seem to be demanding i a lot of people inbound to me uh, you know and our, and our analysts were very nervous about what the actual supply numbers are and what that could do for the sector as a whole. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, it is a it is a really critical question in terms of how this is going to play out. I mean, you know, theoretically, um, with every commodity, as the price goes up, you get a supply response. I think it's I think it's quite telling, um, and it's not just in uranium, but it's in a number of different commodities, that even when there is incentive pricing that's attractive, uh, it's it's not always a smooth path to get everything back up and running. I mean, even Cameco uh, announced at the conference they're having a few short-term, you know, production issues. It does reinforce and remind people that mining is a challenging sector. Um, you know, you start opening up new sections of a mine, and you, know, you, you sometimes run into some challenges. So. Um, it is going to be an issue. It's not going to be a straight line in terms of production. Obviously, things uh, like geopolitical unrest um, is another part of the equation. Niger is still not sorted out, um, you know, and that obviously is 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 impacted existing operations. To our knowledge, no uranium has been able to leave the country since the coup in July. Obviously, nothing can come into the country with import restrictions. Uh, and that is obviously impacting, uh, you know, prospective developments there as well. So it is going to be it is going to be challenging. I think it's it's obviously going to create more volatility in the in the spot price, uh, no doubt. With a lot of these, uh, you know, different developments having, I think, an outsized uh, impact on pricing. We see that right now. But I think you know, if you if you take a step back and 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 um, discount some of the short term volatility and noise. I think the greater the greater tr- term trend is clearly still up. Um, yes, it's going to be volatile on the way up, but until you get incentive pricing to create meaningful uh, production uh, in safe jurisdictions, there's no point in creating a lot of uh, capacity in jurisdictions that are that are not safe. Then I think that you know the trend is is clearly up. Um, so that's that's our thesis. I think it's playing out. Um, more or less as we predicted. I mean, I think it's happening faster than we initially thought, but it's playing out as, as uh, I think, as you would think uh, it would in terms of recapitalizing a sector and getting a sector back into equilibrium after being deeply, deeply dislocated. Okay, and I had just a question, which I'm sure you've been asked by lots of these generalists, uh, institution guys, 
uh, who are just trying to work out, you know, the, the, the moving pieces, as it were, which is what are, what are the threats to nuclear? Um, and I'm, I'm going to kind of push you towards the kind of supply side of the equation, uh, if, if I may, because under, under supply or inability to supply to, with, within a, a certain time frame will cause pressures. And, it, and those pressures sometimes lead to opportunities for other technologies and I mean, other solutions. So, so how, how do you read the ability for utilities and, and governments actually deliver the energy required? Yeah, so if you if you look at the WNA forecast and you look at all the reactors that are being built right now and being planned, it's, it's significant. Um, you know, there's 434 operating, uh, there's 59 under, under construction, uh, and there's about 111 being planned, and that doesn't even include all the SMRs. So the world clearly wants to build more capacity. The WNA is clearly saying, hey, if this were to play out as as governments and, and utilities are, um, are, are, are planning for, we're going to need, you know, not 150 million pounds of production a year. We're going to need closer to 300 million pounds of uranium going out in 20, to 2040. That is essentially the industry doubling production, um, which is a huge task, uh, particularly when you had kind of a lost decade. So I, you know, I just feel like everybody is, is really trying to rise up to this challenge and opportunity. The, I mean, the industry is saying, hey, we've got this wonderful opportunity here to build out all this capacity. And obviously the fuel's the, the key the key part of the story here because you, you know, if you don't have the fuel, you can't run these power stations. There's no thrifting, there's no substitution. You need the fuel. And so the industry has a lot of inventory on hand, but eventually the inventory gets run down and you need to restock. Uh, I think utilities spent the greater part of the last 10 years running down their inventory levels because they had too much and or the prospects for nuclear energy and their, and their respective power plants just wasn't as, as rosy as it currently is. So this psychology, I think, is very important in their, you know, in terms of the fuel buyers that their, their plants are going to be operating for much longer. Um, they're getting the government support finally after being ignored for the greater part of 10 years. And that it's safe for them to go and buy fuel on a long-term basis, whether that's five to 12 years out, uh, because they're going to be able to make money. Uh, they're going to be in business. And, and now the challenge is going to be, you know, how do we accelerate the development uh, on the supply side um, after, you know, having, as I like to refer to as a lost decade. So it's, it's going to create a lot of opportunities. You know, at the end of the day, this is a capital intensive industry. Uh, but, you know, capital has been flowing back to the sector for the last two, about two years, really. Um, and so we still think we're in the early stages because uh, there's a lot more capital that needs to come in. Right. Okay. So you, you referenced there, obviously, reactor extensions, which is great. And also some new technologies in terms of, you know, coal, coal fired power stations to, you know, changing to S SMR, um, you know, nu nuclear energy. It's all kind of good, but it's all, and, it, but it's, and it's all kind of gearing itself towards decarbonization, decarbonization and energy security for, for governments. Um, that's the pressure that, that, that they're under. Does that likewise, and this possibly some of the conversations you may have had with these institutions, does that suggest that, that governments and funds have now got permission to actually look at funding some of these infrastructure requirements, whether they be extensions, new builds, or you know, change, change of technologies? I mean, what, what were you hearing 
in the room? Yeah, well, I mean, you have obviously have different um, models in different markets. Um, you know, in, in a country like France, which is obviously a huge nuclear advocate, I mean, the French government basically took over the uh, the public state of EDF, which is the big utility. Why did they do that? Well, because they basically want to have complete control over rolling out their program, which uh, encompasses up to 14 new uh, nuclear power stations being built. China obviously is a huge part of the story. You know, they're they're basically saying we're building 150 new uh, nuclear power plants over the coming decade. That is obviously going to take the lion's share of all of this expected demand. Uh, and China, as we know, over the last couple of decades, has been um, very creative and capable of securing uh, all of the different natural resources it needs to enable enable its its goals. Uh, we believe that a lot of the uh, increased production that is being planned in Kazakhstan over the coming years is mostly earmarked to, to go to China. Uh, and that makes total sense to us. It's right next door. They're building out the biggest fleet of, of nuclear reactors in the world. When you load a nuclear power station with fuel for the first time, it requires an incremental amount of fuel on that initial loading. So if you think about 150 power stations, it's a lot of material. Um, so, you know, Kazakhstan is obviously um, very strategically important to, to China and to some degree Russia because Russia uh, doesn't produce any uh, uranium itself. It all comes from former Soviet states. But the Western utilities are obviously very focused on securing their own supplies. And that's where, you know, countries like Canada and Australia, some of the African countries, um, are clearly going to be uh, doing most of the work there in terms of supplying the Western reactors as they finally start to build up more capacity. And more recently, and with more immediate effect, the life extensions we've seen uh, can can really impact the uranium demand profile in the market and the and the pricing uh, very quickly when a utility gets news that they're 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 getting an extension for five or ten years, they obviously need to come to the market and buy fuel. It's it's getting it's getting very competitive out there, and you you, you reference a few like the, the the French I think Iran are, are allocating one point eight billion on nuclear extensions. China is obviously building a massive reactor fleet, which is going to need to be fed and and with that, without this wanting to be like an anti-china discussion because i think it's clear from things like commodities like rare us and i think even this week or then maybe the end of the last week now since china with regards to uh exports on graphite that they are going to look after their own just as you know america with just as europe is, is going to have to what do you think that's going to do to the the traditional buying um, behavior of not just utilities, but uh, may, maybe even in intermediaries, if there are any left, uh, for uranium. Um, I mean, you obviously with Sput with the Sprott Physical, Sprott Physical Uranium Trust have been out there buying. What, what, what are you seeing or what are you coming up against in, in that context? Well, I think what we've seen in the last year and a bit uh, has been the early stages of bifurcation in the, in the uranium market. Um, it really started with the civil unrest in Kazakhstan in January of 2022. Um, we do think it has accelerated somewhat, uh, just given obviously the, um, the 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 troubles we're having with Russia and Ukraine, and the fact that um, most of the Kazakh material is still traveling, you know, overland through Russia up to Saint Petersburg for shipping. 
there's still lots of risks of, to potential disruptions uh, with that. And every once in a while, we get a little bit of a scare, whether it's a ship uh, being able to pick up material or insurance or, or, or whatever. Uh, so I think there there has been a bifurcation. We do think the market has tiered in terms of pricing. Um, our contacts lead us to believe that the pricing for Kazakh material is lower than, say, material coming out of Australia or Canada. Um, that's that's been in place we think for quite some time, and um, you know that obviously benefits China. That obviously is. Uh, very focused on buying discounted uh, material from the Kazakhs. But I do think there will be uh, different values placed on origin. Origin risk is starting to become uh, more of an issue. People are more focused on diversifying their supply. Um, and, you know, it's hard to do that when you've got one country that produces 45% of the stuff. Uh, there's only so many places to diversify. Um, but I do think that is going to stimulate more investment in places like Australia uh, and um, in Canada, you know, two, two mining jurisdictions that have a very good track record in terms of producing uranium. I do think that's going to benefit them, just like it's benefiting certain countries in South America that are producing things like lithium and copper. There's going to be kind of a value placed on material from those parts of the world versus, let's let's say, Places that that are more prone to to geopolitical risks, right? Okay, and so and, and what does that do for companies like yourself? Obviously, we, we talked in the past about maybe list, listing in New York. Um, perhaps at the time, the kind of political will wasn't there, but right now, with governments across the world trying to secure for themselves um, not just you know the, this on this energy transition uh, that we're seeing, but all all commodities, all critical minerals, did they? Not cut you some slack, but you know, do, do they lean in a little bit and say, "Well, actually, maybe these guys—they—they're on our team, and maybe you can take advantage of that situation, and maybe you know, start those discussions again, or you know, work towards a conversation." Yeah, I mean, specifically um, with respect to pursuing listing? Uh, an, yeah. an NYC listing, it's yeah. not something we're 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 thinking about at this time. Um, it's, it's, it's based on a simple fact The we do not meet the listing requirements there. Um, the standard listing requirements for all commodity stockpiling funds. Um, and the reality is, is that we've been able to attract capital with the existing vehicle listed on the Toronto stock exchange, uh, very effectively. Uh, most of the capital is institutional. Uh, they obviously uh, have direct access to buying buying the fund and in, in, in either currency. Um, and we also on the on the US exchange have it listed on the OTC best market as well for retail investors. Right. Okay. Okay. Now just just trying to work out I, I guess kind of play the market in an ever changing market in a potentially bifurcated market. Um, you know, perhaps conversations and um restrictions change um somewhat. Um so for, for you, as far as you can say, what are the what are the things that people need to be focused in on that perhaps they're not? Because there's obviously on a daily basis across social media, lots of ideas about what's important. What do you what do you think is important? Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, it's not the easiest thing to get information on, just because the industry is somewhat opaque. A lot of these contracts that get signed uh, are confidential. Um, a lot of the reporting is voluntary. So, for example, we report 
every single one of our trades to the various pricing reporters because we think that transparency is very helpful. That helps with price discovery as well in the marketplace. So it is challenging for investors, but uh, what we always remind people of is at the end of the day, the end users, which are the utilities, are really driving the bus in the market, meaning they're the ones that need 180 million going up to 300 million pounds per, per annum uh, in time. The term market is really what sets the price and that's what we pay incredibly close attention to. Yes, the spot market has a role to play. Yes, the spot market um, is part of the ecosystem, um, and we and we're active in it. But the term the term market is really what we are looking for: signals. We're looking at the contract books. Um, we really our belief is that the utility contracting cycle is only going to accelerate, and I think we've got enough tangible evidence so far this year that that is playing out. The other thing we're, we're obviously focused on is the investments happening in the supply chain in the Western market. You mentioned Orano uh, recently making a very sizable announcement about expanding their enrichment capacity in France. We've seen similar announcements from Urenco in New Mexico. Uh, the Converdine conversion facility finally reopened in June. And why all that is important is because, yes, is it is about diversifying away from Russia and de-risking uh, the potential weaponization of uranium. But more importantly, it is allowing things like overfeeding to finally start to happen. Everybody started talking about this last year, and we saw an immediate impact in terms of conversion and, and SWOO prices last year. And a lot of investors said to us, you know, the prices uh, of conversion and SWOO have doubled, and why is the price of uranium only up 15%? And we basically said to them, look, you got to be patient here because SWOO and, and conversion is, is where there is a bottleneck. It's where Russia has a disproportionate market share, and eventually it will cascade down to the U3OI price. Now, look at 2023, what's happened. Conversion price and the SWOO price are basically flat for the year and the uranium price is up over 50%. So it's playing out as we had predicted. And it's just a quirky thing about the uranium market. You know, when utilities buy uh, their fuel, they go in reverse order, which is not intuitive for people to think, but they actually start with the fuel bundle, they buy the enrichment service, they contract for the conversion service, they buy the U308, and it's a it's a you know kind of a, a counterintuitive process. You think you'd start with buying the feedstock and work to the fuel bundle. No, it's the opposite. So the focus last year was all on enrichment and SWOO. Now it's 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 clearly focused on U through eight procurement. Well, it's exciting times as ever with this space has, has been for some time, but now starting to move through the phases quite quickly. Um, John, appreciate your time and sort of sharing your insight and, and knowledge with us. Um, I'm keen to see what comes out of Charlotte as well. Maybe we'll have a chat after that. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a very interesting. As you said, it is starting to move uh, a lot faster.